This is Desperation City. The only thing that is keeping the, the internet together as this internet, as distinct from a myriad of other alternatives, what's stopping us splintering and fracturing is actually cohesion in the namespace. So the DNS is now everything for the internet. So I suppose I'm not going to these meetings and following the DNS because it's a cute bunch of geeks who have interesting things to say. And they do. Well, they do, yes. That's certainly admitted. But it's because that is actually the most important piece of work about the internet as a cohesive environment that we have left because we've broken everything else and names are all we've got to rely on. So oddly enough, comfortable or not as it might be, you know, this is really important work. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things relating to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson, picking up the reins from Robbie Mitchell, who's joined ISOC. All the best, Robbie. At ITF 115, held in London in early November, I sat down with Jeff Houston from APNIC Labs for his regular monthly spot on Ping. We discussed DNS OARC, which he attended at the end of October in Belgrade. This is a recording made in the field, so it has a bit more background noise than usual. So, Jeff, you were at the recent OARC 39, which I believe was held in Belgrade in Serbia this October. Uh, Yes, I was, George. Look, over the last few years, I've sort of become, now some would say obsessed, but I would say gently fascinated by the wonderful world of the namespace and the domain name system. And there's about eight talks. There there are about eight talks. And the reason why I sort of want to reflect on a little bit is that we've totally stuffed up the addressing space in the internet. You know, when we ran out of IPv4 addresses, we didn't flip over to v6. No, 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 nothing so sensible. We started doing, I suppose you would call it stupid tricks with addressing. And we started fragmenting them and putting them through translators and completely changing the semantics and meaning of addresses on the internet. And so having an IP address doesn't mean you're on the internet. It actually doesn't hold the internet together. That's kind of weird given that there's been an orthodoxy that there are three legs of the internet. There's the unique distribution of addresses, the provision of a routing framework to reach them, and a mapping of names to those addresses, Jeff. So you've kind of stepped off the plate a bit here if you're saying addresses aren't what we think they are. Yeah, we broke them. So that's one leg gone, and routing's a bit weird, so that's two legs looking a bit shaky. And here we are. You're fascinated <laughs> with names, and I'm kind of sensing you're saying the third leg is looking wobbly. No, 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 it's the only one left. Ah. You know, this is... Des- a stall with one leg. This is Desperation City, the only thing that is keeping the, the internet together as this internet as distinct from a myriad of other alternatives. What's stopping us splintering and fracturing is actually cohesion in the namespace. So the DNS is now everything for the internet. So I suppose I'm not going to these meetings and following the DNS because it's a cute bunch of geeks who have interesting things to say. And they do. Well, they do, yes. That's certainly admitted. But it's because that is actually the most important piece of work about the internet as a cohesive environment that we have left because we've broken everything else and names are all we've got to rely on. So oddly enough, 
comfortable or not as it might be, you know, this is really important work. So DNSO up, a place for DNS geeks to talk about fun things in names, held in Belgrade, and you've got a sample of seven uh, so or eight of, stories you think are interesting to reflect on. Some of the stories that I think are very interesting to reflect on because OARC actually stands for Operations and Research. And so there's this kind of unique blend of stories from the field as much as it is stories from the lab. How are we evolving it? Where is it going? As well as what are we experiencing? So, for example, uh, the first talk was actually a little-known side effect of some of the early work in trying to make the DNS more amenable to competition. Back in the long, dark prehistory of time... 1985, you mean? Well, I'll go so far as to 1988, but around that early time. A good year, a fine year. Um, all of the domain names were handled by what we call the internic where NIC is Network Information Centre, like APNIC or AFRANIC or LACNIC, yes. that idea of an information space. We love our acronyms. We yes. do. And for a while it was done free of charge. Thank you, US Department of Defence Research Agency, wonderful bunch of people. Um, but as we kind of moved away from that and went into a fee-for-service model, which is yeah, normal, normal rules, it emerged that there was kind of one entity initially go global solutions or government solutions and then network solutions and now VeriSign, who are actually charging money for the only show in town, otherwise known as Monopoly City. And this caused a bit of heartache all over the place. And in the late 90s, 98, 99, there was a lot of effort to try and unleash the awesome power of competition into the namespace. And one of the ways that we devised a way of doing this was to split the DNS provisioning process in the same way as we split wholesale and retail in distribution of goods and services in society. So this isn't making structural change to delivery of service on port 53. This is about the back-end, backroom processes to define what a zone should be, how zones are populated, and how you find the name service in port 53 service. It's the management layer. It's the management layer. And in fact, it's how you buy a name. And if there's only one shop that sells domain names, they get to set the price. But if you enter into the street of everyone selling domain names and they're all competing with each other, you actually get competition on price amongst other effects. You touched on this with wholesale retail, but there's still a requirement in DNS because of the structural mechanisms we use to construct a zone. It has to result in a final editorial pen writing the zone. Within limits. There's only one zone file and one zone file operator, and let's call that party the registry. Right. And they actually provision names. They're the folk you ask, does this name exist? What's its IP address? all good stuff. But at the front end are a whole bunch of retailers who speak to the registry. And we call those retailers registrars. And the party that actually has dispositional control of this contract and these behaviours and says, I am the point of authority for why a namespace exists, I have tended to call the delegate but so far, we're not talking about the delegate. We're no. talking about the registry and the registrar. 
Right, and this is the way we introduce competition, registry and registrars. So there's always one registry, but registrars, GoDaddy's a popular name out there in the market, Amazon, there are a whole bunch of people who do this, okay? Different prices, different terms and conditions. It's competition, that's fine. But when I buy a domain name from Fred and Fred goes out of business or Fred jacks his prices up, I want to move to Jim or Bob or Carol or Alice, anyone. How do I move around? And you go, well, that's a problem, but it's just you. It's a one-off. But let's say you're Salesforce and you're dealing with thousands of names and you've just done a corporate deal with Fred's registrar service and you want to move all those names from Alice to Fred or, or something like that. So we're not talking a single customer's problems of how do I engage to move my one name. We're talking about the potential of large amounts of name movements needing to take place in a synchronized, organized manner. They're in the same registry, but you need to move which registrar holds, you're dealing with. Holds my records, my credit cards, whatever. And you, my credit cards. So we've come straight to the point of the data that's being held here. Pretty much. Now, now you'd think in this world, heavily automated, it's all a bunch of application programming interfaces, highly efficient, twiddle, 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 punch the button, we're off. Script it. You would like to think this, yes. We are talking the 1990s, but people had automation oh, no, back in the steam age. We're talking 2022. So we've rolled forward and we're in current time now. It's and a decision made back then that persists now. And, and the presentation in OARC was, was an experience one from Salesforce, right? who is moving a whole bunch of names across into their favourite registrar de jour. So here you are thinking, well, it's 2022. There should be an automatic programmed interface. This stuff should be absolutely rock solid. Everyone moves registrars. It's competition. There are a lot out there you'd be wrong on every count. Because the last thing a registrar wants you to do is move. Happy to let you in, very sad to let you go. And, and the presentation was basically saying, wow, how's your fingers and how's your keyboard? Because there are no APIs. There is no automation. This is scraping screens. So mechanistically, to do their day-to-day -day job, they have automation for the transactional acts I do to make new DNSSEC signatures over my delegation or to add a new NS or to manage glue. That stuff, mechanistically, we're kind of comfortable. That's where they compete on, the quality of that service. But we're now in the space of, but I need to leave you. And go to the, the shop front down the street. And I have a lot of them. I have thousands. And I'd really like this to complete transactionally as a group. I don't want two left behind. And I don't want it bleeding out for a month. And what I'm hearing is, sorry, it's not quite that simple. Registrars don't have a strong incentive to make that process automated and fast. The back-end interface from the registrar to the registry, a lot of work on it. Highly efficient, secure heaps of activity. But this kind of, you're going to leave me? Here's 30 screens. Work your way through. Tell me when you're done. You know, I think that does sound like a talk people would want to listen to and look at to get a sense of the flavor here, because it goes to the competitive and regulatory space here. 
the kind of behavior you're talking about is something we really need to think about. Right. It's kind of competition, yes, but the ugly side of it is if it's you leaving me, I'm not very interested in making it easy and no one is compelling me to do so because it's a Mm. regulatory light-touch industry, as we we well know. And uh, I think what I would call suboptimal behaviours certainly prevail in this kind of area. Fascinating. So, number two. Number two. Actually, this was my presentation. Uh, Now, do we allow people to do marketing on Ping? Yeah. Uh, I think we probably (laughs) do. So, tell us about your presentation. There's been a couple of themes in the DNS, and certainly some of it has been motivated by the Snowden revelations back in, I think it was 2013 or something, where the DNS is almost the perfect piece of spyware, that if I could see your DNS queries, I probably know as much about you as you know yourself, because everything starts with the DNS. Every, every part of what you do normally says, hi, DNS, you know, I'm going to Google, www.google.com, you know, and so on. And so if I saw your DNS streams in real time, there's no secrets anymore. So when this kind of was revealed that there were state-based actors doing an awful lot of peeking over your shoulders and looking at your DNS, the reaction from the protocol community, the IETF, was let's encrypt it all. Just encrypt, encrypt, encrypt. So this is taking the data stream in port 53, which is my request for what is about some label, the fact that state actors along the path that query has to travel start to have insights into me specifically making that query. And as a response, the community saying, how can we put that data into a secure channel so that the parties who have to answer know the questions being made, but someone looking along the path can't see? You can't see on the wire. Yes. Right. And we've used the standard tool. I make the tool that we have is, is Transport Layer Security, TLS. Right. And there are a couple of sort of efforts to put that into the DNS. Um, we actually, because we're good on acronyms, call them DOT and DO. Uh, but there's nothing deep. DNS over TLS, D-O-T. DNS over, well, it's actually HTTP over TLS over TCP. We're sounding like a stacking layer violation here. But given <laughs> Let's call H- it dough. But given HTTPS is, in fact, a form of presentation of data into TLS-protected channels, it kind of converges it's, back it, on its TLS protection. It's how you wrap it. it. It looks a lot like the same thing, yes. Right. So you've been doing work in measuring and looking at this space. I have, but this is not what the presentation was about, oddly enough. So that's the first part of it, that we've encrypted. Right. But there's a second part of this, which is, gee, it's slow. It's slow. All this work we've done on making the protocols go faster, the DNS resolution part can still take a remarkably long time. Because it's not just tell me what's the IP address associated with that name, but the DNS is a distributed database. So you've actually got to figure out who to ask to find the IP address associated with that name. So you're not saying specifically that the burden of constructing a TLS-secured channel is a problem here, or is that where you were going with this? No, we will get there eventually, but this is the the more general observation. DNS is not question-answer in an instant. There is a body of work to be done. There are a number of questions, and each next question relies on the previous answer. 
necessarily sequential behavior to complete an outcome sometimes. Digression, dear listener. Here we go, www.ping.apnic.net. A good name. A good name. Wow, that's a structured name. It has www, it has apnic, sorry, ping, apnic, and net. I don't know who the server is for that. I don't know who to ask. Let's start at the top. Right, we start at the top, and we ask the root server, if we don't know already, What's what are the set of servers who know about .NET? Question answer. As soon as I get the answer, here are a bunch of servers who know about .NET. Hi, one of these servers. Who is the server for apinic.net? Question answer. That comes the answer. There's just been a little moment there, Jeff, that is a potential state actor moment because you didn't ask them who is the server for random things or all things, you asked them specifically about apnic.net. I did. And and in actual fact, there's another talk about this. I'm giving you the secure version. Because you could have asked for www.ping.apnic.net. And I'm telling the route where I intend to go. Bad idea. But there's a a truncation. So you're asking staged questions. I'm, I'm, I'm being economical and adequately economical with the truth to avoid telling everyone what I'm about to do. Right. But you're starting to see that with a name like www.ping.apnic.net or whatever it is, that's a lot of question answer. Well, it's four or five minimum and probably more. Right. So this is starting to take time. Now... This industry does take to heart the billion-dollar millisecond. We really do spend a lot of money to eliminate time. It's been a constant in modern protocol design that some players actually reject developments that incur the time barrier. So we've gone to all of this hassle to make TCP faster, to do ultra-fast TLS session establishment, shaving milliseconds. Great work. But the DNS is kind of going, I'm sorry, there are no shortcuts here. You've really got to take this seriously. It's a slow process. Go back to sleep. You know, I'll let you know when I've got the answer. But it doesn't have to be like that. You see, the one thing about HTTPS, or HTTP really, but let's go secure HTTPS, is that this is not just the DNS that's slow style sheets in web browsers. You know, when you go to a web page, you don't just ask for one thing. You're actually having a real conversation for a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, we can see 15, 20, 30 connections in parallel fetching micro components of what will be the final page experience. And so the HTTP folk also have time on their head. You know, they're, they're thinking about this. And what they thought was, you know, whenever you get this page, You're also going to want that page and that page and that page. You're always going to want a style sheet. You're always going to want one of these and one of those. I think I can see where this is going. So in HTTP, there's a thing called server push. I'm going to tell you the bits I can predict you're probably going to need. I know you're going to ask for it, so here it is. And by the way, because it's kind of an encrypted session, if you believe what I tell you, I'm just telling you more of the same. This isn't some random stuff. This is part of the same session. So if you believe me for the first web page that came from me, the server, here's a whole other bunch of stuff in the same domain, so it's got the same you know, certification and authenticity, that you're going to need. So here it is. Well, 
DNS from early stages had the concept of additional data. There was a framework built in, baked into the protocol, to give you a strict answer and a bit extra. Well, the problem is that until you sort of sign everything and have authentication, additional data coming from random bits of the DNS this is not a trustable is about thing to as do. useful as riffling through you know, the rubbish tin out on the street and using whatever you find. It's a bad idea. So we're looking for something that moves beyond randomly adding extra data to avoid queries to doing a doing form of DNS that does a secure way of saying, I know you're going to be asking for this. So now let me go back a step and let's talk about DNS over HTTPS. Do, do. And the beauty about DNS over HTTPS is both the question and the answer are just HTTP objects. From the HTTP perspective, it's like a web page. It's just a bunch of data with a wrapper. Now comes the magic thought. I can push. Here's the search page because you asked for, you know, resolverless DNS. Here's a whole bunch of references. And all of them are URLs and all of them contain domain names. Tell you what, just to make life faster, here are all the DNS answers for all the DNS names on the web page I just gave you. So the necessary following question that you were going to ask based on assuming you're reading through what I said and I told you a list of places to go was, yes, you gave me the names of the places to go, but how do I get there? And you've just added the magic through HTTP. I know you're going to ask that. I know you have a secure channel to me. I know you have some trust in me because we're in a world. How about I tell you that now? Right. So as soon as you click something, the next packet you emit is the you know SYN packet, the connection packet, to the place you want to go to. There is no DNS anymore. You've just cut it out. So this would appear to me to have two potential benefits. The first one is the time benefit. And the story you've told is that there's a significant time component here. Oh, yes. There's an advantage. But the second one is it goes to query minimization, doesn't it? We're in a channel that we have some basis to believe is protected. And I've just been told things. I won't have to make visible questions. About. Right. So all of a sudden, the server has already made that query, not just on your behalf, but a bunch of other folks. And no one saw you make the query. So all of a sudden, you're hidden. It, there's no knowledge that you or anyone else actually was going to go to that page from the DNS because the server has already pre-provisioned the answer. And we see this again and again in the architecture of the internet. When you have abundant comms and abundant compute, the way to make things faster is to do it before you need it just-in-case provisioning, rather than wait just in time, so the user's going twiddle, 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 I'm waiting, DNS, please give me an answer. You kind of go, look, I don't know exactly where you're going to go, but you're probably going to go to 10 places, here's 10 answers. And let me just give them to you because, you know, you've got memory, I've got compute, this is fine. So you're ready and poised to make the next packet count. You're just cutting things out and privacy you're not being seen to do anything. Last piece of the puzzle on this path to resolverless DNS, why should you believe Joe Random Server? You shouldn't. Joe Random Server is not necessarily always honest. 
sad but true, some servers lie. There has been other research work in DNSO up discussing the amount of leakage of information through use of random endpoints for provisioning of service. Random endpoints are just, yes, random sources of untruth. But we have an armour, we have some weaponry here. And, and the weapon in this case is DNS security, DNSSEC. Because if you sign a domain name, it has a time window because that signature says valid between these times. So you know it's current. It is a full-blown digital signature. If it validates, that's the real deal. It's a protection against corruption in flight, yeah, what you're being told. No, the server isn't lying. That really was an authentic copy of the DNS. It's the signed, sealed, and certified. This is an original copy of the original DNS information, and it's current. And as long as you've obtained a trust anchor independently, you have a chain of trust from independently sourced knowledge through the key pairs of the different DNS elements. DNSSEC validation. That. Final piece. Normally, DNSSEC validation is shunned and reviled because for the same reason, as we saw before, server discovery, it's an iterative process and it's very, very slow. DNSSEC validation is, wow, an iterative process and it's very, very, very slow. But the server has time, memory, compute, and let's say it found all that data for you, all that validation data, and wrapped it up in a very clever RFC called DNS set chain extensions. So now I bundle you the answer in DNS and the reason why you can go through the signatures to trust it, your call, not mine, don't take my word for it, do your own work. Then all of a sudden, you know it's the truth because you worked it out, you validated from the data, it is the truth, and again, you're not telling anyone you're going there, you can go there. So if we consider what we could call old school DNS, your mother's DNS, because this is not your mother's it's DNS. Certainly not. Old school DNS would be lightweight UDP, one question, one answer, and a belief that that represents the end of DNS. The reality was it was a sequence of question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. It had a time penalty. You stay in port 53 UDP, you try to implement security, the number of questions has exploded. You move to a protocol that includes a push component. You move to a world where servers are caching state that is useful to rapid delivery of all the answer. You don't see people having to ask questions relating to you, so you get some conditional privacy, and you get pre-given in one package of data exchange the components you were going to ask for discreetly you can start to do the checks. One more plus. We did a shortcut in DNSSEC, in DNS security, because right at the edge of the network, we thought it was all too difficult for edge clients like browsers to do their own validation. <laughs> so we actually use an unprotected path in the DNS from these browsers to the service provider's resolver. A stress unprotected. And the service provider's resolver might do all this validation work. Very good. Here's the answer. I've validated. Let me set a bit in the open, unencrypted exchange between me and that end browser to say, trust this answer. Oh, a magic what's, bit. What's wrong with that statement? Well, anyone could have set it. Why should I trust it? You haven't told me why it's trustable. In fact, I really shouldn't. But interestingly, in this approach, all the material that said why it's the truth 
is now back with the client. You're not actually trusting anyone else. So you're secret, you're fast, and you're doing your own trust. I think I've ticked all the boxes. It's a pretty good outcome, Jeff. And you kind of look at what the DNS is and go, why aren't we doing this already? And this is the bit, I suppose, where I took it to DNS art going, you know, and everyone knows, this is the way we can put this together. It's not hard. It's just existing RFCs, existing standards. Let's do it this way. Why aren't we doing it? And unfortunately, I can't answer that. I don't know either. But you were in a room of people whose business is to think about future trends in DNS. So there's value in putting the question on the table. Although I would observe at least half the audience would have been people that you have disintermediated in this conversation, Jeff. The role of the internet is always to get rid of the mediators. And there's a large DNS middleware industry. And if you change the roles a little bit, and get rid of iterative queries and replace it with server push, you've empowered some people, browsers, and you've, you know, gone around others. True. But if this is really, and it wasn't RFC, the internet's all about end users. If this is really about making this network more secure, less leaky, less, you know, telling tales on its users and faster, then again, I think this is ticking a whole lot more boxes than otherwise. And the fact that a few folks say, well, that's the end of my business model. Well, true. But we're not here to give people jobs. We're well, here for the user and we just made them secure and faster. That's a pretty good upside. That's a really good upside. And uh, resolveless DNS. So, so fun. that was two. Now, give us another hit of what happened in the DNS OARC meeting, Jeff. Um, I'll do another tricky one. Um, the wonderful world of the Internet of Things. You see, the Internet of Things goes from everything from smart televisions through to air conditioning controllers, things that open your door, blah, blah, blah. Chips everywhere, connectivity everywhere. But anyone who's ever bought one of these webcams, there's a lot of work. Unlike old TV where I just took it out of the box and plugged it into the wall socket and it just worked. There's this weird part about configuration. Not only do you have to configure it into your home network because it's got IP, not only do you have to configure it into your home network because it's got IP, but maybe it wants to talk to its home, its manufacturer and say, hi, it's really me. It's not my competitor masquerading to be me. So there's a certain amount of setting things up and making things trustable. And you could say, oh, yeah, user, I assume you're a nerd. Go for it. But if I'm selling a baby webcam to the millions out there, I really need to do it as plug and play. It needs to be configured up in the factory to be able to plug in directly and just work in a secure, trustable manner. That's a very steep requirement to get to from a world where we expect things to adapt to a local network that may be highly variant. And the experience in the IETF has been a tendency to try to avoid baked-in assumptions from the vendor, well, but you're kind of heading to, there's a minimum set here that are unavoidable. So there's this group called LoRaWAN, LoRaWAN, who's right. actually trying to develop standards around this area because 
you know, this is a problem and it does need to be fixed. So you've written in the past about the internet of stupid things and a lot of <laughs> IoT devices have the capability <laughs> to be immensely stupid. This is in that space of trying to mediate a better outcome? Well, it's in, in, in the space of trying to make them less dumb uh, and, and to be able to try and turn them on in a way that won't you know, destroy your entire home in the process. Okay, so we're in IoT and we're in the role of DNS provisioning IoT at scale in the global network. And we're talking about this in the DNS? Aha. Uh -huh. Well, shaky legs, we're down to one, everything comes to names, right? Well, in actual fact, the DNS is the answer to every known problem in the universe. You didn't know that, but now you do. You know, it, no matter what, putting it in the DNS is an answer. And, and it's actually not a bad one. Surprisingly, it can do a lot of information really efficiently. And one of the areas where this is actually interesting is in authenticity. Who are you? So you alluded to this earlier when you said for a manufacturer, which presumably for a smart bulb, they're offering a mediating service, the login and register and rendezvous. There's a quality of third-party rendezvous in a cloud host here. And you're saying, yes, but if you run that cloud host and you're selling the light bulbs, you really want to know that it's your light bulb, not somebody else's. Well, yeah, and I'd like that light bulb to have a secure conversation with its server and data collector and so on. I've got the home battery at home talking to the data aggregator, and I don't want that to be an open conversation. No. I need to use TLS. That's the only tool we have. And traditionally, the answer is, yeah. And for that, you need certificates, X509 certificates. Right. The which component are, of chaining of trust that has to lie in this protocol layer to bootstrap protections that you can believe in. Because if you take a random key to assert a trust, you've been randomly led to a trusted bike to a bad actor. So provisioning with X509 and automation is very hard to put in one sentence because it's very hard to do. Because trying to load in these certificates in the factory and then turning on the device later and trying to say, well, that's my certificate, my key, doesn't really have a good track record. No, Mike St. John's did quite a lot of work in DNS working groups a few years back talking about the need for cold standby machines in DNS and the belief you could bake keys into them, take them out of the factory five years later, turn them on, and they would work, fails in things like key rollover. It's hard to make a standby system or any widely dispersed system where goods might sit in a warehouse for three or four or five years and have them come up secure. That's hard. So as I said, whatever the problem, the DNS is the answer. And in this presentation, it's actually trying to take that standard PKI, the key problem, right? the public key infrastructure, and instead of using provisioning of certificates, you use domain name keys in the DNS, otherwise known as Dane, tied up with DNSSEC, secure DNS, so you can believe the answer. So I provision the device with enough for it to be able to validate the original key, the trust anchor, and I let it boot up and do Dane to actually pull all the rest of the information dynamically from the DNS. So Dane is a field of standardization that is not strictly in DNS. It's a parallel body of work, right? It's a different working group, a different space. It, it is a different piece of space, but... What we're talking about here is actually a shortcut to the prize. Because 
most of our domain name certificates are really saying, you know that person who has that key pair, public-private key? It's actually a key pair associated with this particular domain name. And here's a certificate to say so. What do you mean? It's associating a domain name with a key pair. And you're using a certificate. Well, yes. Why don't you just use the DNS? Scratches head, thinks hard. Why not? Oh, but I can't trust the DNS. DNSSEC, I said, make it secure. So now, why can't I put the keys in the DNS to say, the keys are there, look up that name, get the answer, here's the public key, use DNSSEC to validate, it's the real deal. So this does sound like a useful decision to make, but from context we've talked about outside of this conversation, I've picked up a quality, which is the people in TLS standardization for some time were uncomfortable about a transitive dependency. They were not entirely comfortable in their specification space that they should bridge, cross the beams, if you like, to make the establishment of a TLS state depend on outcomes in another field. But this sounds like this is the decision that says, well, you don't always want to do that, but if you do want to do that, how does it work? Well, I'll actually go further and to say this actually eliminates the certificate people, the third party, the wildcard element, and cuts straight across. And oddly enough, it's the domain name folk for countries, AFNIC in France, CIRA in Canada, who are grappling with this problem on a large national scale. And we've even got a name for it, self-sovereign identity systems, which actually try and create mechanisms within that national regime to set up secure transactions backed up with keyed infrastructure that leverage the DNS and domain name, Dane, keys in the DNS, to actually make this hang together. Real solutions? Still around the idea concept. But I think it's got legs. I think this is going to go a long way of actually saying X509, has kind of run its course and it's just not fitting with the requirements of the world of IoT, lots of worlds. But we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater here because public-private key cryptography still has legs. This is about how to construct chains of public-private key pairs in an efficient way to bootstrap TLS-like protocols. Yes, exactly. If I remember correctly, Jacques Latour at one point discussed a Canadian drive for improved trust in IoT. They were considering a Canadian stamp, like the C mark that we see on electrical goods, that would give some localized market assurance these goods are fit for deployment. They were scared Canada could become a potential DDoS generator and target with uncertified goods coming into market. This sounds like something in a similar space. Well, it is indeed directed at the same space. It is the sovereign identity issues that talk about products being sold in a particular market with assurance for that market at a national level that the security mechanisms and authentication mechanisms work within the context of that environment, work within Canada.ca or dot fr in france and this, similar. this sounds like an interesting place i think people should go look at this one it, it was it's why good. i'm mentioning it was sort of an ears prick up going you know yeah it's it's a real problem and a serious problem 
And, and the IoT market for a long time just kind of went, nah, not my problem. Making the whole thing about we just set up insecure devices and just pray, just pray not that, that it's not good. It, it just becomes massive attacks, attack worlds because, you know, that's the problem. And if you're serious about trying to make a world of devices and you're trying not to make them toxic and malevolent, you're actually trying to make them work as intended. The security answers and the authentication answers need to go hand in hand with those devices. So you need these lightweight but effective mechanisms that do it. And oddly enough here, the DNS and DNSSEC, and Dane in this case, is actually really the sort of building blocks to make that happen. So a fascinating presentation. Um, there's certainly a lot to read up about self-sovereign identities and this area around Dane, but I think it's worth keeping an eye on. Mm, that sounds like a good one. So what else, Jeff? Um, I'll, I'll leave with one more, and this is almost, to some sense, to some sense, it was actually the, one of the reasons why this particular weird group, DNS Operations and Research, was actually set up. And the project was originally called Day in the Life. You know, Dittle. Dittle, you know, Day in the Life of a country, lots of photographs, Day in the Life of something. To forestall too much more depth in the history, we are considering a ping episode that is going to be talking to people from OARC discussing the background history of software they develop, but also day in the life and the design of that system. So we can probably construct some linkage to someone else here, Jeff, but the talk. Right, well, this, this is one actually from uh, Dwayne Wessels, uh, and I'm sorry, Casey Decchio in this case, Casey was the researcher, and it was taking this data, which just sort of seems not enough, but it was enough. All the traffic that goes to these root servers at the top of the DNS is captured for 48 hours once a year. That's all. Now, it's a lot of data. It is a lot, a lot of, of data. And in some ways, you'd kind of go, but it's only one day. But in this case, it's been going on for years. So it's almost longitudinal that if you take eight or 10 years and sort of look forwards as well, you know, and look backwards, you can actually see changes in the nature of these queries. So Casey took a 14-year-long period and took all these collections, you know, for 48 hours in each year and said, what's changed? What key aspects of our DNS have actually changed over the years and how long did it take? And he kind of posed a number of particular questions. Now, the first question is, can you attack the DNS and what is it doing? What are we doing to defend those attacks? The answer is, unfortunately, for most folk, for most domain names, attacking the DNS is child's play. It's incredibly easy. I've talked already that we should be signing domain names. The sad truth is well under 10% of domain names are actually signed with this technology. And this is by no means equalised across all namespaces right. either. So, so in some ways, everyone's leaving their doors wide open and their windows and everything else. And Casey was able to look back over a 14-year period and actually see the continuity of attack risks well, and threats in this capture. Well, not quite. It's something a bit different. If you assume that DNSSEC isn't there for everyone and you're an authoritative server or a resolver and you're trying to protect domain names, 
How do you try and defend yourself against attack? Now, it's very easy to make a resolver ask a question if you're an attacker. It's actually remarkably easy. That's pretty much what its single job is. Somebody asks me, I'll ask the authority. Right, you, you ask a question. But the resolver that's asked the question is now sitting in wait state. The first person that sends me an answer with the source address and port number of my original query, I will believe. Ooh. You mean to say that if I observe the port numbers you use in your queries, I make you ask a question, I can just flood you with fake packets. And there's a high likelihood. There's a high likelihood if I'm fast enough, and I am, I'm close to you, I'm, I'm malevolent, that you're going to believe my fake answer. And because the domain name isn't signed, because most of them aren't, winner. So what we need to do is to make sure that when you ask a query, the source port, that 16-bit number, is not fixed. And not predictable. You wouldn't want an incrementing sequence, for instance. Right, it's got to be random. But that introduces, it should be able to slide in a fake address. I've got to send you 65,000 packets really quickly to assure myself. But even if I can't assure it, I've got to send you a lot of packets to try and guess the right port number to slide it in. So it's not necessarily a lock and key against attack, but it raises the bar. It's raising the bar. The real question is, if you look at the root and the queries it gets, what's the proportion that actually perform source port randomization? So thinking about how you would see this in a capture, you would be seeing queries asking questions at rate, and you would be looking at the set of port numbers seen over time, trying to understand if you can see evidence of reuse of a port number, sequencing of a port number, or behavior that goes to randomization of the port number. But that's quite a lot of work, Jeff. Oh, we have computers. It's not that hard. You're doing it by source address. You're taking three three or four queries, and you're looking to see if the source port is varied across those queries from that source address. Right, and that is going back into the deep time samples, bringing it up to so the current day. In 2008, half of these resolvers asking questions didn't do any randomization, and that was 75% of the queries. So the volume by IP address was half, but the volume by query percentage was 75. Three quarters. So because we have a very small cohort of IPs that do most of the DNS so query. In 2008, if you were doing, I'm going to guess the answer and get there first, you were going to win. You were just going to win because no one was defending. That was 2008. But we've got 14 years of data. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to 2011, we appreciated the problem. How quickly did we react? We got from three quarters and not doing randomization down to one half. Now, there are domains where people would say that's significant progress and we should go and celebrate at the bar. But it's sounding you're a bit getting, like... You're, you're getting to the bar a bit early. Yeah. But the good news, by 2021, the last you know, year we have data here, only 4% of resolvers don't do source port randomization. So it's kind of, it took 14 years, but we're now lifting the wall up for everyone. It's now actually getting better. It sounds like this goes to the supply chain in software and the upgrade pace for 
the function of the resolver, it has a life and it probably has a cost burden of maintenance. And if you said, I'd prefer not to upgrade if I don't have to, I'm not going to. But 14 years is an extremely long time to retain a service in deployment. Right. So, but if you're introducing changes that improve the DNS, don't be impatient. But that was not the only one he did. When you do DNSSEC validation, you actually have to ask for more data. You've got to ask for different type of resource records about why should I trust the signatures, particular queries. The DNS root was first signed with uh, DNSSEC validation in 2010. And we're able to watch the rise of resolvers that perform validation. Took another three years for it even to be visible. So from signing to visibility and use Using. by the query was a three-year three. gap. Well, when you said, don't be hasty, or words to that effect, yeah. we're seeing that here. 2021, 11 years after it was signed. And DNSSEC is useful. 17% of resolvers are seen to be doing it. 17. At the Only 17. I, I like to be happy on this show because I'm an optimist. Oh, no, well, let, let me give you happiness. Let me give you happiness because that's the other part about this, which is both happy and sad. Those 17% of resolvers are the big ones. The big ones. The ones at the front by ID who handled. 70% of all the queries. I think this is a moment to go to the bar and celebrate. I think that's celebration. I think that's celebration. That's an interesting body of work. I like two aspects. One is that it's providing really useful answers to rate of change, pace, and qualities of protection. And secondly, that it means OARC is not hoarding because the deep time data was important it's to the quality important. of what he did. One further metric, um, again, this is about protection, and we, we touched upon it earlier, query name minimization. I'm going to ping.apnic.net. But why would you tell the root server that that's where you're going? Why don't you just ask for net? Right. And in a data collection looking at the root, you objectively can count how many two and three and how four dotted folk, names how many folk appear in the root. Are, are offering their life history when all you really wanted was yeah. the top-level label. <laughs> right. You know, gratuitous overexposure, what we call Q-name minimization. And again, we've started... You know, the DNS DITL data can track that. And in 2019, when this was first really brought up as a thing, less than 5% of resolvers actually did QNA minimization. It wasn't very prevalent. The number now, which is really only three years, has risen you know, from 5% to 10%. So not the 17 but nonetheless, a movement. Nonetheless. And would I be right in thinking it is that top set of IPs? It, it, it is the top set. Complicating this is, of course, the whole issue with CDNs, content distribution networks, and the way they play in the DNS with this structure of name aliases and CNames. With very short TTLs so that they can swing traffic rapidly. And, and I don't know whether to introduce it, dear reader, or not, but if this is a topic that fascinates you, non-empty terminals is the key phrase to do in search because the treatment of these names that don't have any content other than a further delegation is not unambiguous. Some resolvers behave as if the name doesn't exist, 
while others actually treat it as you know, appointed to other names. I suspect this is something we're going to come back to and talk about in depth. Right. So this is one of the reasons why some folk are hesitant about doing query name minimization because they're fearful that in some cases a real domain name will actually come back and say no such name doesn't exist. Not because it doesn't, it's because, you know, the way in which it was implemented and pushed into a content data network has managed to trick their resolver into thinking the name doesn't exist yes. when it does. And we've had history in the past that held cache state, retained cache state in the resolver authority space because you said it's a database, a large distributed database. These things have consequences. Yes. It has to be thought about. But to come back to Casey's work, he was looking at the prevalence of query minimization in the root data. How fast is it being you know, used and adopted? What's the adoption trend? Yeah. You know, how much is this taking off? And there are encouraging signs, but don't hold your breath. And I suppose the big lesson there is that unlike, for example, iOS platforms on iPhones or updating Chrome, where there's a certain amount of push control yeah. that keeps everyone up to date because we all understand the danger of running basically unupgraded software. Well, when we, when we critique the walled garden, the thing we forget is if you're inside the garden, the garden is a managed space and can be very beautiful. So these qualities like an ability to force rapid update, rapid adoption of necessary changes are the beneficial components of closed environments. There are many reasons people are unhappy, but this is not one of them. Right. So for the DNS, that's not the case. The DNS is actually a bit of a wasteland of neglect that people set up their DNS resolvers and servers and then it's a sunny day. They need to go shopping. And yes, is- I, I have personally been guilty of allowing <laughs> my glue to go stale in my registrar. Right. So there's a yeah. lot of, of slowness about adoption because, and I find this rather weird, even though we're all acutely sensitive the dangers of running old stuff that is insecure, like not doing source port randomization, like not actually doing query name minimization, splashing around other people's data at will, we don't seem to want to keep up. Mm. And for the DNS, change is slow, even if you're trying to do better privacy, better security, faster. Change is slow. I think this is something that is going to have to be borne in mind with coming significant changes in DNS. Particularly here, I'm thinking about the mooted algorithm change in DNSSEC signing, which poses questions about the nature of software systems and untried code paths, because we would be asking ourselves, how long is it going to take to understand this space? And the message you've been giving from Casey's work is, it can take a long time to reach a level of confidence that all of the members of the ecology or enough of the members of the ecology are in a position to do something that you would think it was low risk. Well, interestingly, OARC, Operations and Research, was a technically focused meeting. It wasn't the economics of the DNS, it's the technology of the DNS. Mm. And there is this second stream, which I'd just like to touch upon and then run away. The DNS is a market failure. The DNS actually should never work. The last I heard, I don't pay for my queries. 
Neither do you. I don't think anybody's in the routine business of paying by query. So if I set up a recursive resolver and process your queries, it's either a labour of love or acute stupidity. Not sure which. Or a necessary evil to secure service that otherwise makes you money, but that's a cost side. There's no profit in it. Well, I've never changed ISPs because of the quality of their DNS service. A few things that you've been saying here puts that point on the table, Jeff, that perhaps it should become a component of what we think. Maybe it should, but it isn't today. And, And so the whole issue of quality in the DNS, of doing the right job well, quickly, securely, with privacy, doesn't actually alter buyers' intentions because there's no money. That might not be market failure in the singular sense. I was being dramatic. It's a strange market, isn't it? (laughs) It is. It is a very strange market. And so the incentives about making the DNS better are actually altruistic. It's love. You know, Mm. it's this, I really want to make it better, not I'm going to be a billionaire overnight because you won't. You know, and in some ways that's the cute part of OARC. Yeah, we're here because we like it. There's a room full of folk for which too much DNS is never enough. Train spotters. Train spotters of of a DNS kind. And and I I find these weekends incredibly uplifting because that's the room of the tribe. This is where we talk about our common interest in this most fascinating of protocols. A, it's the one that keeps the thing together. B, a bit like chess, it looks really simple, but it's incredibly complicated. And see, we know a whole lot less compared to what we don't know. We don't know very much at all about the way the, the DNS actually works. Here's one of the major pieces of a distributed database, which is bigger than humanity has ever seen. And we fundamentally don't understand no, aspects of no its No clue as to why it works. And when occasionally Facebook or Meta have a bad hair day and lock themselves out of their DNS... Or, you know, Slack find that their name doesn't exist for 24 hours. We still are scratching our head going, how do we do that? What's going on? Yeah, a fascinating space to be in. And considering the one-legged stool of the global internet, I think a space that deserves this level of care and attention. Jeff, that's been fascinating. A wonderful oversight of some of the papers at the OARC meeting. I'd encourage everyone to go and look at this. Um, Yes, by all means, um, look at the papers. They're all online. There are presentations there as well. And if you're, like me, a DNS nerd and you haven't heard of OARC, where have you been sleeping all your life? Go and check them out. This is amazing stuff. Thank you very much, Jeff. That was a great wrap-up of some of the papers Jeff heard and presented at the DNS OARC meeting in Belgrade. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placement, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. That's all from Ping. Until next time.